Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. When the Green Line in Boston stranded riders during a busy commute, it was a big inconvenience, but also an opportunity. It allowed people another opportunity to observe how our aging transit infrastructure is failing us every day. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll look at the T and ask if New England's biggest city can't figure out public transit, what does that mean for our region? And we'll look at an obsolete system releasing raw sewage into the Connecticut River. Our infrastructure is so old that you, you, you can't look away for a second. Plus, how can a rural town in Maine convince its graduating students to stay? With their ambitions, with their, with their experiences, if we can figure that out, it, I think it'll be, it'll be a renaissance for Rumford, Maine. And we'll look at how Vermont is attracting young workers who are supposed to love the hustle of urban life. But maybe we're a little, little closer to nowhere in a kind of comfortable way. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. It's now been nine months since Hurricane Maria devastated the island of Puerto Rico and nearly 400 families are still living in hotels in New England with FEMA and the states footing the bill. But that changes at the end of June when this assistance expires. Many of the evacuees staying in hotels don't know where they'll be living next month. And as WBUR's Shannon Dooling reports, some of their concerns run even deeper than just finding shelter. A half dozen women are sitting around a folding table in a Dracut, Massachusetts church. They're gathered for a potluck meal of arroz con pollo, salad, and chocolate chip cookies. And they're picking up bags for their families, full of donations from surrounding communities. All of these women have relocated from Puerto Rico and are living in area hotels for now. But like 42-year-old Dagomar Rivera says, the future beyond June 30th is unclear. I don't know what to tell you. We're just hoping for a miracle, that some door will open for us because we're not really here for pleasure. We're here because we need to be. Most of us are sick or have children that are sick. And we're not asking you to keep us or anything. Just give us the opportunity to have a roof over us and to be able to move forward. That's it. Rivera limps into the church hall, leaning on a cane. She tells me she needs to be hooked up to a machine to treat some of her illnesses. Um, tengo lupus y COPD, asthma, arthritis. I have lupus, COPD, asthma, arthritis and several heart conditions. So I'm waiting, and we're all nervous because we're out on the 30th. It's not easy. Many of the evacuees who are still living in hotels are here because they have serious illnesses that can't be treated in Puerto Rico. Take Angie Lago, who's also at this church potluck. She's sort of slumping in her seat. She's just come from a dialysis treatment. Her three children all have chronic health issues as well. Some of the women are staying in the same hotel outside of Lowell, Mass. None of them know where they'll be living on July 1st. 
Oh, the picture, the picture from, from that, you know. Oh. Lizbeth Sandoval, her daughter Shayla Beth, and her son, Stephen, have lived in four different hotels since coming to Lowell in January. They've been sharing one queen-sized bed for almost three months. Suitcases and bags stuffed with their belongings line the walls of the room, and red plastic plates are sitting in the kitchenette sink. It feels as though every item has its place in the room, but if you were to move something, it could all come tumbling down. 12-year-old Stephen says living like this is hard. When I see that I have to move from this hotel to this hotel, and the next day I have to get up early for school, and then when I get home from school, I go to another hotel, which is what happened to me. I was in the resident inn, and then I got home from school. We had five minutes to leave and move to the Holiday Inn. And then from the Holiday Inn, we came here. Stephen was recently diagnosed with epilepsy. His mom, Lizbeth, says she couldn't find a neurologist on the island, and their home was destroyed by the storm. She came to Lowell, where she hoped her family would be able to start over. After staying with her cousin in public housing for a few days, Lizbeth and her family were asked to leave. Vénganse para Estados Unidos, los vamos a ayudar, y cuando llegamos aquí, ahí quedó todo, y no te ayudaron. Come, come to the United States, they said. We're going to help you. And then when we got here, everything stopped and they didn't help you. If each person doesn't mobilize and look for their own help, they're not going to give you the help, she says. Sitting on the bed, Lizbeth opens a three-ring binder full of paperwork, mostly housing applications. She says she's submitted 37 different applications since January. In most cases, she was told there's a years-long waiting list or that her family wasn't considered homeless because they had a hotel room. She's appealed some of the decisions. The state has contributed over $1 million in transitional housing assistance to families like Lizbeth's. This has supplemented the nearly $450,000 in hotel rental assistance kicked in by FEMA for Massachusetts evacuees. Still, in two weeks, most of that money disappears. In the hotel room, Stephen gathers his things for baseball practice. Before he leaves, his mom shares a surprise, waving a set of keys in the air. We have an apartment? He asks his mom. Yes, she says with a smile. They pass the keys back and forth for a moment, and Stephen holds them up in the air before clutching them in his fist. (laughs) For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Shannon Dooling. Last week, we discussed the new Hartford Line, a commuter train that will connect New Haven, Connecticut with Springfield, Massachusetts. The hope is that regional connections like this might be the future of public transit, connecting western New England with Boston. But let's say you could get to Boston on the train. Well, then what? Ride the T? Yeah, we keep hearing stories about Boston's public transportation system shutting down, leaving commuters stranded on their way to work. It happened earlier this month when the Green Line broke down during the morning commute. So what's wrong with Boston's public transportation? Can it be saved? Joining us to discuss the challenges and opportunities facing public transit in and around New England is Jim Aloisi. He's former Massachusetts Secretary of Transportation. He's also a principal at Trimount Consulting and the Pemberton Square Group. Welcome to Next, Jim. Thank you for having me on. Also with us is Mark Ibunya. He's co-founder and president of Transit Matters, a group that advocates for improving transit around Boston. Hello there, Mark. A pleasure to be here. Jim, I'm going to start with you. Explain what happened on the Green Line the other day. 
Well, the Green Line had a problem with uh, its catenary system, which is the overhead electrical system that powers it, and it shut down, and it allowed people another opportunity to observe how our aging transit infrastructure is failing us every day. This is, unfortunately, in, in Metro Boston, a not uncommon occurrence that one of the lines um, will be experiencing difficulty because they are old and because we have a history here in the Bay State of chronically disinvesting in our transit assets. I think that's beginning to change, and we can talk about that. But these inconveniences, I think, are causing people, in a way, never before to recognize the need to change the way we think about funding and providing service in the transit area. So, Mark, do you see the failures like this as as an opportunity or more of just an extended problem that will take a long time to fix? Well, I've been living in Boston for about eight years, and Transit Matters is an outgrowth of my sort of frustrations of being being somebody who has who who did have a desk job and up until recently uh, who did commute every single day, and I think. In, in the work that I do also with Jim and, and working with state leaders and local leaders who there's a lot of momentum and, and a lot of energy to change the system. And thankfully, the current administration is doing, uh, is doubling down on some of these investments. But for the last eight years, the Green Line issue in particular, I've been seeing mention or hearing mention about Green Line modernization program for, since basically since I've I've been living in Boston, and you know it's great that we're, we're we're thinking about this now, but this sort of investment is ten years too late, and we need to get started now. Jim, what is the holdup though? I mean, Massachusetts, specifically Greater Boston, has been thriving in part because it's attracting so many young people from around the region to a booming tech sector. There's parts of the city that are going up uh, with new buildings that have never been there before, and they're being drawn in large part by the lore of a city that you can get around on on public transportation. Why is the investment not following this expansion of the way we, we think about Greater Boston? Well, I suppose there are a number of reasons for it. I suspect one of it is what I would call old think, which is the continuing hold that auto-centric thinking has on the minds of many people. And the other is we haven't caught up yet with the times. And when I say that, I mean, we know, as you just said, that we're living in a time, particularly here in the greater Boston area, where jobs are growing, where the population is younger, and when people are desiring and expecting a multimodal transportation platform that is sustainable, and that means more transit, that also means safer cycling lanes. It means more and better ways to walk from one destination to another. We're playing catch-up on maintenance with a $7.3 billion gap in our transit state of good repair. And we haven't yet engaged how to be responsive to today's world. And so we're playing catch-up. And I think people like myself and Mark and others are trying to, to move the needle faster than it would normally move here in Massachusetts to get people aware that the time is long past due to shift the funding paradigm and to make transit and other more sustainable modes as equally important for funding and for emphasis as the automobile. The more that greater Boston expands in the suburban areas that feed into Boston every day, go further into western Massachusetts, up into New Hampshire, down into Rhode Island, even up into the southern reaches of Maine, 
there's probably another type of thinking that would say a more regional approach to how we grapple with these transportation issues is necessary because if Boston's T doesn't work, that means that a whole bunch of other stuff that has to do with those other states and those other regions, well, that doesn't work either. Well, no, you're correct. There have been three reports issued here in Massachusetts this year alone, and they all supported the notion of regional rail. And I was just at a meeting at a better city about two weeks ago where a bunch of folks from the entire region met to talk about better inner city rail connecting all of the major cities of New England, beginning in Connecticut through Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Maine in particular. This is something that's on everyone's radar screen. And so we're a small region, and we need to connect Providence and Hartford, New Haven and Portland and cities in between, using intercity rail. We know that all of our roads are highly congested, right? We know the interstate system is congested chronically, and there's no way to expand our way out of it. Regional rail will become the 21st century answer to the question of relieving mobility and providing people with the access to jobs and opportunity that mobility ought to be doing. Mark, pick up on that, because I'm sure you agree with a lot of what Jim's saying. Our concept for regional rail really calls for the modernization of the commuter rail network and the expansion of that, and especially providing a template for Massachusetts and for the New England region to provide that that backbone of transit to a lot of folks. Because even... Even as we have our own problems in eastern Massachusetts, western Massachusetts has been shouting the past several months for increased investment in their regional transit authorities, which could be further strengthened with rail connections to each one of their regions. And so this is the real opportunity here is is really thinking about how we can leverage not only the public-private partnerships, but also how do we leverage the existing spending that we need to be doing and how do we talk about what investments we need to be making? Because I think that's the biggest problem right now is public support is in favor of spending on transit. But in the eight years that I've lived here, almost every single person that I talk to does not believe that the MBTA spends their money well. And so I think the challenge right now is government being able to tell people that it has concrete and specific goals to uh, to fund and things that they want to do, because uh, as we've seen in, uh, across the nation where there have been successful funding initiatives for increased funding, and I'm talking about ba- regional ballot initiatives where regions tax themselves, they actually increase their own taxes, they vote to increase their own taxes to invest in new expansion and modernization programs, and those have been successful in part because the government agencies have been very, very explicit in how they're going to be spending those tax dollars. And in general, they don't suffer the PR nightmare that is the MBTA, where even a lot of new immigrants to the city, to the region, who want to take public transit, they are being distracted by really low-capacity solutions like the things that, you know, personal rapid transit and things like that Elon Musk is really trying to, to show is like the future that are never going to actually address our capacity issues that Sure, we can all buy electric cars, but now we're sitting in traffic with electric cars. <laughs> well, well, I'll leave you both then with a, a last question around those lines, and I'll ask you first, Jim. What does the future hold if we are to be creative? Is the T of 10 or 20 years from right now a slightly better functioning, more updated version of exactly what we've got? Or do we have something new in mind that we should really be thinking about in terms of public transit around, around Greater Boston? I think it's a T that that blends elegantly the infrastructure of yesterday, which is the subway system, 
with a new modern infrastructure above ground. I think we need to look at bus and bus rapid transit. Hartford's led the way in having an example of what that could look like. I think that we need to be thinking about a new business model for the MBTA and for many transit outfits across the country. When I say a new business model, public transportation needs to be competitive with emerging approaches. There's no reason why a public transportation bus system couldn't also operate as a shuttle system within a certain radius of density and and walkability to be an on-demand service. We cannot cede that space to the private sector. The public sector is there to ensure that public transportation is egalitarian and is maintaining some, some sense of social cohesion in the urban environment. And so I see a future with new business models. I see a future very, very different in that sense operationally from the 20th century. And I think people are beginning to realize it's past due time to think that way and to begin exploring new ways of thinking about how to provide public transportation service. Mark, how about you? Look into a crystal ball for us. What do you see? My crystal ball, I'd say I already see the T as it is today. And the the change is already happening from within. The folks that I work with and that we meet with on advocacy, they are young, smart people who want to see the MBTA succeed. They are people who believe and care about the mission of providing public transportation for everyone and not just the rich and not just the poor, but for everybody who needs to use it in the, in the Boston region. And so I, I see that only accelerating also because we have an increasing number of people in the next generation retiring. And so that opens up a lot of opportunity for, for newer folks to come in bring their new ideas, bring innovation, bring their expertise to the MBTA and really put that expertise to work for the public. And so I have a lot of hope for the future. My crystal ball is a little cloudy because right now, 10 years out is pretty good, but it really depends on, on the decisions we're making right now. Mark Abunia is president of Transit Matters. Jim Aloisi's former Massachusetts Secretary of Transportation. Thank you both so much for joining me here on Next. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, a look at an obsolete system that's still putting raw sewage into the Connecticut River. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. A very old system is still in use at about 800 wastewater treatment plants in the U.S., including along the Connecticut River. It's called combined sewer overflow. What overflows is a mix of stormwater, street runoff, and raw sewage. And every wastewater treatment plant, by law, has a long-term plan to end combined sewer overflow over the next few decades. But every city and town is different, and just how different is evident on a short stretch of the Connecticut River between Springfield and Hartford. NEPR's Jill Kaufman has our story. First, it's important to know this. The Environmental Protection Agency is running 17 years late on a pollution permit for Springfield's 20 or so combined sewer overflows into the Connecticut River. The permit details how many gallons of CSO is allowed per year. The amount in a new permit would likely be less than what it is right now. Here on the river in Springfield, you can find some CSOs easily enough if you know where to look. It's a concrete box with an opening, so it's, it doesn't Andrea Donlin like from the Connecticut River Conservancy suggested we grab some kick scooters 
to travel down the bike path behind the Basketball Hall of Fame to Union Street CSO 15A and B. We climb over a fence, go down the embankment, and check it out. Donlin is looking at a spreadsheet with overflow data from 2016. The bigger one that we're standing over discharged 18 times in that year, and the volume was estimated to be 4.9 million gallons. So that's a fair amount. When it rains or even just drizzles, these pipes can discharge raw sewage into the water here. It's mixed with stormwater and runoff from streets all coming together in one system. The idea behind CSOs, which were built long before the sweeping 1970s Clean Water Act, was to avoid sending raw sewage into streets or basements. And in the 1980s, as towns and cities continued to address their long-polluted waterways, the EPA told wastewater treatment plants they needed to end the use of CSOs. A tall order, especially with no federal funding from EPA. What's Springfield doing about it? Yeah, we, we, have a, we have a huge $100 million cornerstone project that's in design. Josh Schimmel, who runs Springfield Water and Sewer, has an office window that gives him a ringside view to the second largest wastewater treatment plant on the Connecticut River. Before we started this program, we were probably close to 700 million gallons a year, I think, of CSO overflow into the Connecticut River on an average annual year. And after we complete this project, I think we're going to be in the 275 to 350 range. At this point, it's not clear if that amount will be within the limits of a new pollution permit. Hartford, about 30 miles downstream from Springfield, is also addressing its sewage overflow. The Hartford MDC, the Metropolitan District Commission, is building an enormous tunnel that on those rainy days will hang on to the sewage water until the treatment plant has the capacity to clean it up. The cost, including other plant upgrades, is in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Robert Moore, a former administrator at Connecticut's Department of Energy and Environment, says what a lot of other river watchers say, Springfield should be held to the same level of investment. Their program was to spend about 100 or $150 million total, and Hartford's spending $100 million a year. Hartford's massive project got started when EPA took the city's water authority to court for pollution violations. In 2006, the MDC was ordered to undergo big, very specific changes. I understand where Connecticut's coming from. George Hawkins was, up until recently, the head of D.C. Water, which is completing the first phase of a massive tunnel project to reduce combined sewer overflows in Washington. The cost? Billions of dollars. Paid for by loans, grants, and customers who've seen their rates triple in the last decade. In one respect, Hawkins says, D.C. is sort of like Connecticut. We're near the bottom end, the Potomac River and the Anacostia before it goes to the Chesapeake. We are spending enormous sums of money doing our part. Well, at some point, there's no more we can do here because the water coming to us from upstream already got contaminants in it. But Hawkins says not every city can do what Boston did, what D.C. is doing, and what Hartford is doing. From the perspective of Springfield or or any municipality that is not flush with cash and where they're going to come up with the money to do projects of this scale, I'm also sympathetic. In Hartford, a regional wastewater treatment plant. Almost all of its customers from the city and surrounding towns are paying into the plant upgrade. In Springfield, even though it's also a regional plant, Josh Schimmel says only its city customers pay for the CSO work, and they can't afford it. 
Plus, there's so much else that needs to be upgraded. You know, we probably have 200 miles of pipe um, that is greater than 75 years old within our water and our sewer system. And on the day I was in Schimmel's office... We had a water main break this morning with exploding manholes. Our infrastructure is so old that you, you, you can't look away for a second. That old infrastructure is all over New England. Andy Fisk, who runs the Connecticut River Conservancy, says Springfield should find a way to get those towns to help pay for upgrades and maintenance. He respects the Water and Sewer Commission is being careful with its money and that it has many issues to deal with. But we think what their solutions are is too short-sighted and not comprehensive enough. Fisk says it would be logical if pollution regulations, permits, and funding for infrastructure upgrades happened regionally. He likes to think like a fish when it comes to clean water regulation. Swimming upstream, a fish doesn't know when it's crossed from Connecticut into Massachusetts. That should be the model for state and federal regulators. As for why EPA went 17 years without issuing a new pollution permit for Springfield, Fisk says it's not clear for um, reasons that may be obvious and others that sort of people are scratching their heads. And I think when you look at Massachusetts and Connecticut, they are very different applications of EPA's authorities uh, and policies between the two states. Three states give the federal EPA the authority to issue pollution permits. Massachusetts is one of them. In Connecticut, the state is in charge. And around the country, when state government has control of permitting, there is closer oversight of water systems. That costs states a lot of money, but Connecticut has grant money for CSO upgrades, and Massachusetts doesn't. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman. More than 65,000 miles of river run throughout New England, many of them heavily populated and industrialized like the Connecticut River. But only about 360, or less than 1% of those miles, have achieved a rare national distinction, wild and scenic. These are rivers designated by Congress as having a special natural and cultural importance. Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill recently went out on one such river, the Eight Mile in southeastern Connecticut. The trees are dense, the path is narrow, and everywhere there's the sound of water. I hike to a clearing and hear it dashing against rocks below, clouds of mist wafting over my trail. This is Devil's Hopyard State Park a place I've always thought had one of New England's more unique names. So I asked my guide, Rob Smith, where it came from. I mean, there's lots of different tales. Smith was a park manager here for about 10 years, and he says the mist coming off the falls can get a little spooky. They attributed the potholes to the devil as he was coming up, climbing up over the rocks here, getting his tail wet, and his cloven hoofs as he leaped from place to place going up the falls created these potholes. Today, Smith and I are exploring a part of the park where the Eight Mile River runs through. It's a watershed that's 40,000 acres of forests, fields, and fast-flowing cool rivers. It's a beautiful spot. So pristine that in 2008, Congress designated parts of the area wild and scenic, one of only 10 spots in New England to carry that title. Why wild and scenic? This area isn't on the way to any place. Tony Irving is one of the many volunteers who worked to get that designation, and he says the eight miles distance from cities like Hartford and New Haven kept the area looking like Connecticut would have before Europeans settled here. So it was sort of an area that didn't really get developed at all. Sort of, because there was some development, just not much. (laughs) 
As we hop in a car and travel from the 8 Mile's western branch to its eastern side, Irving and Smith explain how colonists had a lot of trouble farming here. The soil was rocky, which made it hard for villages to expand, and when the west opened up, populations dropped. Still, as I learned a few miles later, some families stuck it out. We're walking down what was the original road through here. David Bingham says his family's history on this land in Salem goes back to the mid-1700s. As we walk down an old path toward a century-old bridge, that history is alive, pillared in nearby sugar maples which tower above New Forest. You can see along the old road here, you can see the large trees, which were once the shade trees for the road itself. And uh, so this would have been the main thoroughfare when my father was young. As we talk, a tiny winged visitor interrupts us. Friendly little back. bug on your neck here. Let me, there we go. Don't worry about it. <laughs> That's a uh, damselfly. It, Very pretty. <laughs> it's actually yeah. fun to watch them come, and they actually slap the water in the stream. Bingham points out wildlife. There are state-listed rare plants, which help the area get its wild and scenic title. There are invasives, which present new challenges, and then there's just the beauty. As we talk, a turkey vulture soars overhead, and between the natural sounds and flowing water, it's hard to leave. But Tony Irving has a schedule to keep. He's eager to show off the river. Okay, we're on to our next spot, which is going to be the Edville's Pond Dam. In the car, I tell Irving I actually visited this spot back in 2015. Back then, the 80-year-old Edville's Dam was holding back a lot of water creating a big pond in the river, which Irving says sat unshaded, baking in sunlight. It was literally warming up the rest of the river. That was bad news for fish like trout, which prefer the eight miles colder water. So conservancy groups took the dam out and basically rebuilt this part of the river, using old photos to see how it flowed and recreating its path with rocks and other guiding pieces of armor to sort of talk the river into saying, yeah, you remember this, you remember this? Well, we're gonna just help you remember a little bit more by putting a little armor here to help direct that water flow. Water which flows down to where the east and west branches of the Eight Mile River converge, what's called the river's main stem. Now, we're at the end of our journey. A short car ride takes us to a dam and an old mill that's really close to the terminus of the river. We're near Hamburg Cove, where the Eight Mile dumps into the Connecticut River, about eight miles north of Long Island Sound. That's where the Eight Mile gets its name. Irving lives nearby. He moves here a while back, and he's never stopped appreciating the river. Oh, this is my church. It really is my church. Giving him a spiritual connection, and he says an ecological one, a diverse array of wildlife and habitat, all of which combine to make the Eight Mile River wild, scenic, and maybe a little mystical. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill in Hartford. Coming up, a charming country store in Vermont gets a new owner. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. It's a problem across the region. How can we maintain and attract young people to make up for our aging population? This week, we visit one small town in rural Maine where graduating high school seniors are looking toward the future, whether or not that future includes returning to their hometown. Maine Public Radio's Robbie Feinberg has our story. Last week was one of celebration at Mountain Valley High School in Rumford. Over a dinner of pasta and chicken, the seniors received awards and scholarships. Senior Brooke Carver is the star. 
It is with great honor that I present this year's math department plaque to Ms. Brooke Carver. Carver also gets the Community Service and English Awards. She also played sports year-round, and her accomplishments earned her admission to Bentley University near Boston this fall. I just really like the more city atmosphere and the more diversity that I'll be able to see there. I just think it's so cool that you could be on campus and be like, oh, want to go to the Celtics game tonight? And be like, sure. Carver will leave a town that struggled. The area used to be a hub for pulp and paper. In the 1950s, it reached a population of more than 10,000 residents. But automation and a declining paper industry have brought round after round of layoffs to the Rumford Mill. And the downtown is now dotted by vacant buildings and storefronts. Over the last decade, Mountain Valley High School has lost more than a third of its students. Nearly 70% of those remaining are eligible for free or reduced-price lunch. Principal Matt Gilbert says the increasing economic hardship has had a noticeable effect on students' college aspirations. Only a few students, he says, look at colleges beyond Maine. And I I think that that's also connected to where we are currently as far as our our students' demographics, um, what's happening at the dinner table when they get home. Chris Carver is a social studies teacher at Mountain Valley High School, and he's also Brooke Carver's dad. Gathered inside his classroom with his wife, Debbie, and two kids, Carver says it's been frustrating that more of his students can't attend those prestigious schools, even though he knows many have the grades and work ethic to succeed. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I went to UMF, and I'm very happy that I did. I do, though, want to keep the door open for any kid that goes here to be able to go anywhere. You know, I wish we had more resources to enable that to happen. Right, and even if you get into, like, uh, one of those schools, it's you have a lot of catching up to do. That's Chris Carver's son, Garrett, who graduated five years ago and attended Bowdoin College in Brunswick. Garrett says when he arrived at Bowdoin, he was already academically behind classmates who had access to advanced placement courses in high school. Everyone had taken AP Chem and AP Bio, usually AP Physics, too. It's like we didn't even have those choices here. And his mom, Debbie Carver, recalls the culture shock that her son experienced. You have friends that have houses, and they're going to, oh, we have a place in the Bahamas, and we're like, the Bahamas? And they're, oh, well, it's not that nice. And we're like, you have a place in the Bahamas. (laughs) That's just nothing that we experience here. But Garrett succeeded. He enjoyed college. He received a degree in computer science and is now working in the greater Portland area. Principal Matt Gilbert says he sees those success stories every year, and he's proud of them. But he'd like to see more of those success stories return home to Rumford. With their ambitions, with their, with their experiences. If we can figure that out, it, I think it'll be, it'll be a renaissance for Rumford, Maine. And for some graduating seniors, the idea of returning to Rumford is appealing. Senior Isaiah Thornton grew up in the middle of the woods, about a dozen miles outside of town. He spent weekends in his grandfather's barn, tinkering with old cars and motors. But college wasn't on Thornton's radar until a few years ago. My mom didn't go to college. My dad didn't go to college. When they did talk about it, they talked about me going and me being the first in my family to go. And over the past two years, Thornton says he's got his grades up and filled out applications and financial aid. Now he's enrolled in the automotive program at nearby Central Maine Community College. With that, I want to bring business to Rumford. I want to open up my own shop. I want people to say, wow, look at this work. I want to go there, get my stuff done there. Like, I just want to be able to give back to Rumford in a way. 
town and school officials are searching for new ways to attract students like Isaiah Thornton and Brooke Carver. Principal Matt Gilbert offers an example of a new ski patrol apprenticeship program at nearby Black Mountain, which he hopes will expose students to outdoor careers only a few miles away. Many of the students interviewed for this story said they would be interested in returning to their hometown at some point, if the right job opportunities were here to greet them. Right now, though, Rumford's local economy, like many in rural Maine, is still grappling with long-standing problems that have made it difficult to bring those jobs back. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Robbie Feinberg. New England is home to the three states in the country with the oldest populations, the aforementioned Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont. And as we see the older workers in the region leaving the workforce and moving into retirement, who will replace them? That's what states around our region are working hard to figure out. The Vermont legislature recently passed a bill that would award remote workers moving to the state up to $10,000 over two years. Sounds pretty good. And around the region, signs are popping up advertising Maine as a place that welcomes wanderlusters and where you can make vacation land work for you. Joan Goldstein is commissioner of the Vermont Department of Economic Development. Joan, welcome to Next. Thank you. And Dave Vasconcellos is here. He's a partner at Live and Work in Maine. Hi there, Dave. Hey, John. Let's start with you, Joan, and and tell us about this Vermont Remote Workers Program. What exactly was in this bill, and, and why did you go this direction? So basically what the bill does, it permits the payment of up to $5,000 for up to two years for people who relocated to the state and are working for an out-of-state company. And the impetus for this is really part of a larger economic development marketing initiative where we recognize we need more people to live and work in the state. And it's a combination of working with our visitors to see if visitors would like to stay, and then people from outside the state who are looking for another place to live. We recognize that people are flocking to large metropolitan areas, and rural areas have a harder time attracting folks. So we need to sweeten the deal just a little bit in order to turn the tide. And just after this announcement, we've had a deluge of inquiries So a a deluge, I guess I'm wondering, are you going to get so many people who want to move to Vermont that you won't have enough money in the pot to pay them all? Yeah, I think that will happen. I think it's fair to say that it will be oversubscribed. But like any type of incentive or marketing, you do experiment with things and you do test things to see what works, what has resonance, and then we could tweak accordingly. And if it means that we have to go out and raise more money, then so be it. All right. So, Dave, what what is Maine doing and how is it different from the Vermont plan to attract workers? I'll echo a lot of what Joan said with regard to the goals of bringing people to Maine, keeping people in Maine, and promoting Maine as a career destination. The one thing Maine is known as is vacation land. And what we're trying to do is change the conversation and promote Maine as a career destination. And doing so not with one specific program, but really taking a partnership approach, whether that's with the state itself, the employer community, as well as colleges and universities. We're not trying to recreate any wheel or content, but really promote Maine, the brand, as a career destination. But you're doing it differently than Vermont in that your organization isn't the Department of Economic and Community Development, and you don't have state-passed law that is making this money available, right? Correct. I mean, there is in Maine a program called the Opportunity Maine Tax Credit, and that is geared 
specifically at those individuals who have student loan debt and if they come and live and work in Maine, they can subscribe to this program and get tax relief directly from the state. And one of the things that we did was take on the charge of promoting and marketing that program. And we've seen from the numbers from the state that the increase in the program has jumped up over 56% in the last couple of years. And much like Joan said, our goal is to bankrupt the program, to make it so <laughs> successful that they need to fund it more. Joan, I'm wondering what you think the big barriers are to getting more younger workers to come to Vermont. Dave's organization has been pretty successful in just making the case that living and working in Maine is something that that is going to feel good. It's going to feel different to someone who is stuck on a subway car on the T and and wants to maybe imagine a different sort of life. Is that something you think can appeal to young workers who might want to relocate to Vermont? Oh, absolutely. I think that if you had the capability to work anywhere in the world, you have a job that allows you to do that, why wouldn't you want to work in a very aesthetically pleasing place? And if you are into outdoor recreation, why would you want to live in a city where you've got to commute long distances to get to ski or to get to fish? So I think those two things are important. The third thing is the ability to make an impact. You know, young people, I think they go to big cities, they think that's all there is to do. But the unintended consequence of living in a smaller scale or a place with smaller scale is that what you do has an immediate impact on your community. And when you live in a small community, people look for volunteers, they look for people to lead efforts and projects, and that can be very gratifying for the person who does that. And it's also very, very important for the communities where they reside. Dave Vasconcellos is a partner at Live and Work in Maine. Joan Goldstein is commissioner for the Vermont Department of Economic Development. I want to thank you both for joining us here on Next, and good luck attracting all those people to your states. Thanks (laughs) Thanks so so much. Do you have a general store in your New England town? Is it a community gathering place, a post office, the heart of the community? Well, the Ripton Country Store in Vermont is all of these things and more. It's a place where you can buy penny candy, brake fluid, pickled beets, and, well, of course, Vermont maple syrup, all the while going to pick up your mail. But in March of this year, the owners of the Ripton Country Store, since 1976, announced that they are retiring. Bill McKibben wrote about the store in the New York Times, and because of his op-ed, well, new owners will be taking over in August. Bill McKibben is an environmentalist, founder of 350.org, and he teaches environmental studies at Middlebury College. He's the author of many books, most recently, Radio Free Vermont, A Fable of Resistance. Bill McKibben, welcome to Next. It's very good to be with you. So, first of all, tell us about the Ripton Country Store. Describe it for us. (laughs) Well, it looks just like you would think. It's at the top of the hill, coming up from the Champlain Valley, climbing up into the Green Mountains along a winding road. You go past the sign that says you're entering the Green Mountain National Forest, and then past another little sign that says you're entering the hamlet of Ripton, roughly 500 souls. And there's the store, the only business in town, uh, the only retail business in town. It's wooden, painted red, and when you walk inside, you walk back several generations of retail. The floors are old and creak a little bit. There's a big, beautiful, old antique cash register still in operation. And there's one or two of everything you might possibly need 
and several things you might not uh, on sale in the small space that's shared with the post office, which means that everybody in town comes in every day. Everyone comes in because they want to get some of the stuff that's there, but also because they want to meet and gather. Talk about that second piece of this as a, as a gathering place for the community. Well, people come in to pick up their mail, and as they do, they bounce off each other. It's where the bulletin board for the town is, but there's also an old pot-bellied wooden stove there that gives out heat all winter long. This is not some kind of retro, <laughs> funky, uh, make-it-look-like-the-old-days <laughs> store. This is actually an old store <laughs> with an old stove, and so you're likely to find uh, anybody in town in there at any hour of the day as long as it's between 7 and 7. So it's not the ironic hipster version of a country store. It's actually a country store. (laughs) Yes, exactly right. And, you know, we took it for granted because Dick and Sue Collett had been running it for so long and just steadily, dependably, day in, day out, having it open. And so it came as something of a shock when word came that they'd finally reached the stage where they felt just physically they had to retire. The, The challenge of keeping the stairs shoveled and the shelves stocked was beginning to take its toll. Do you think that this is happening to to general stores all around New England where the original owners or owners who are part of a a family tradition have to step aside? Is this something that's happening beyond the the Ripton Country Store? Yes, I think actually it's probably happening in a lot of places across Vermont. Once I'd written this piece, I heard from people elsewhere. And apparently a sort of nonprofit model has emerged to try in some places maintain the store and things. I got to say that proved not to be necessary in Ripton. Once I'd written this piece for the Times, dozens of people were phoning up trying to to buy it, and indeed it has been bought. And a new young couple will take over on the first of August, which is very good news for all of us. And have they promised to to keep it as <laughs> is, or are they going to be able to have a little bit of leeway no, in terms of what's on the shelf? I hope that they'll be doing. You know that they'll put their mark on it just as. Dick and Sue did. I mean, the important thing is that there be a place where there's milk and eggs and mail and a place for everybody to to see each other in the course of a week. And beyond that, I, I have no doubt that they'll figure out some ways to make some more money off of it going forward. Apparently, one of the couple that's taking it over, the fellow is an avid bicycle racer, And I think one of the attractions is the store is on one of the famous gap rides that brings lots and lots of bicyclists up and over the passes, what we call gaps, in the Green Mountains. So it wouldn't surprise me a bit if we look up in six months and there's a... uh, air pump and uh, <laughs> a big selection of you know energy bars someplace near the front of the store, and that'll be just fine. Well, one of the, the tensions we report on on our show an awful lot is this desire of New England to stay New Englandy, even sometimes when a type of progress or m- modernity might make a little bit more sense. I'm wondering how much you've thought about that issue in, in the place where you live, about the encroachment of the new and in the holding on to the old and how those things could and should mix moving forward. Well, you know, I think and write a good deal about local economies. And one of the things I've noticed is that there's a dramatic swing back toward the local in a lot of ways. Now, it it 
it's going both ways too. There's a big swing toward the global. Uh, you know, a lot of people in Ripton buy a lot of stuff from Amazon.com too. But when things can hang on locally, they're bouncing back. So, for instance, 25 years ago, I'm not sure there was a single brewery in the state of Vermont. Now there's more per capita than any place on planet Earth. If you're drinking beer that comes more than 500 yards from from where you're drinking it, you're doing it wrong, you know. <laughs> and that's a you know become a vivid, powerful part of Vermont's economy, worth something like 700 bucks a year to every man, woman, and child in the state. And so I think that clearly these are countervailing trends, but I wouldn't bet on globalization outdoing localization, I have a feeling that for a lot of things, we're slowly moving back in the other way. Let me ask you one last question, though, about some of those tensions. When, whenever you write in the New York Times about your small hometown store and you get responses from all over the country and probably all, all over the world, is there ever something in the back of your mind saying, if I tell people about this beautiful place where I live, <laughs> everyone's going to want to come here? Well, I was actually very impressed with the number of people who did want to come, and I was very impressed with the fact that, I mean, I did my best when I wrote that New York Times thing to lay out all the drawbacks, including the fact that uh, once you get to Ripton, you might as well toss your cell phone in the Middlebury River because (laughs) it's not going to work. And uh, oddly, those things seem to be as much lures as repellents for people reading the piece. There were a lot of people who were seemed to be bidding for this store precisely because they were looking for something that didn't quite look like where they came from. Yeah, getting a little bit off the grid isn't such a bad thing now and again. Yeah, we do have the Internet, you know. It's not like we're (laughs) living in the middle of nowhere, but maybe we're a little closer to nowhere in a kind of comfortable way. Uh, The piece is called Vermont Town Seeks a Heart and Soul, also Milk and Eggs. And thanks to Bill McKibben, there's a, a new owner of the Ripton Country Store. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. The executive producer of Next is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Lily Tyson and Ali Oshinsky. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. And thanks to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.